Good morning, everyone. Um, this week marks the second to last of our series on early women of faith. Um, one of the joys of this series is we've been looking at a lot of times we think about how our faith was built. We think about Genesis and Exodus. We do well to park in the lives of the patriarchs. But kind of the hope of this series is to show you, just like all of us in this room are only here because of our mothers, this faith that we have, this faith that we built, this faith that God has given to us has come through these early women as well. So this week we'll be looking at the life of Jochebed, um, Moses' mother. And this is the second to last one. So next week we'll have our last um, sermon on early women of faith looking at Miriam. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. We'll be looking at the very first 10 verses. Again, this series has kind of been grounded on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which remind us to trust in the Lord with all of our being, trust in the Lord with our whole heart, trust in the Lord fully and completely. And in trusting the Lord, we realize that our faith then is something that can build and grow over time. We're very blessed this morning because all of us who have chosen to follow Jesus have some helpers along this road of faith. We're blessed to have the Holy Spirit, which lives within us and grows us and transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ himself. We're blessed to have Jesus himself in front of us as our guide, as our model, as our example, as someone who shows us that it is possible for us to live and please God. We're blessed to have the body of Christ all around us. Um, we do very well here in America and the West to, to think of our faith as something individual, as something that's just me and mine. However, Scripture teaches us that we are members of one another, that our faith is not meant to be individual, but that we're in this body of Christ together. And what a blessing to have a body that's not just Harrisburg Brethren in Christ but a body that is all over the state of Pennsylvania, all over America, all over the West, all over the global South, all over the world. What a blessing to belong to people who trust in the name of Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to have these people then not just even be all who are alive. This is the one that gets me excited because you're members of a body of every Christian who's ever lived and every Christian who will live. That's why we're not individuals. That's why we're in this together. And then lastly, we have the scripture. Uh, more and more in our society, you know, we've kind of either looked at scripture as the fourth member of the Trinity, which if you know anything about three in Trinity, that's not possible. However, scripture is authoritative. Scripture is given to God for us to teach us how to live. So in looking at these women of faith, hopefully we don't just go with them through their hills and valleys, their desert and rest. But hopefully we're looking at their lives as a testify and a witness and a help for us. If you have your Bibles, again, Exodus chapter 2, I'll be reading the very first 10 verses, and we'll also have it up front, starting at verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes. Go, she answered. 
So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these great women of faith, for their testimonies, that, that witness of a God who's amazing, a God who's good, a God who orders our steps and makes plans even beyond our own understanding. God, we thank you for the life of Jochebed. We thank you for her faith in you. We thank you for her not only choosing life, but investing in life. We thank you so much that due to her witness, we're blessed with the story and the life of Moses, the one who you would choose to deliver your people out of slavery. We thank you that Moses' life and Moses' work is just a small picture of Jesus himself, the child who would come to rescue us and to defeat sin, death, and destruction once and for all, our deliverer, our God, who's our ever-present help. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you so much that with a little bit of faith, you can use us to change your world and to usher forth your kingdom come. In your holy and precious name, amen. amen. One of the things that's very easy to notice in the birth of Moses is, first of all, most Bible commentaries or most Bible, when we break it up, we call this the birth of Moses. Yet Moses, the name doesn't show up till the very end. We go straight to who the book of Exodus is going to be centered around without kind of doing homage or, or, or paying attention, I would say, to kind of some principal characters that go into Moses being Moses. The first is God himself. And one of the things we, we've been learning and kind of going through, and one of the things I want you to always hold on to, is that God is all-powerful, but God is also humble. He's the God of this universe, yet he chooses to do his work with you. He chooses to do his work with us. And in this story, he's not the principal character. What's happening here, we're going to talk about the scene and the setting and all the stuff that's happening that we're going to rehash from last week. But what I think is important for us to hold on to is that Jochebed is just living by faith. She's just being faithful to God. And God is sitting back, not just letting it happen, but dictating her steps. And it's this reminder to us that if we have our faith in him, praise God, he will use our best to do much greater than we can imagine. So God is kind of the behind-the-scenes director, and it's a reminder to us, too, that no matter how much we might not see and feel his presence, we can trust that he's working. No matter how dark the pit seems, we can trust that the light is not only around the corner, but the light is in us is going to come out. We can trust that even though we might not see him directly, we can trust the scripture that reminds us that our God works all things together for our good. And the second character that is kind of important in this is Jacobet. We don't even get her name in these 10 verses. In fact, in all of Scripture, I think there's two places for sure that we get her name. And each time that we get her name, it's, it's who her husband was and who her three children were, that she birthed basically the priesthood of Israel, Moses, but also Miriam and Aaron as well. So she's unnamed in Exodus 2. We learn that she's married to Amram. We learn that she birthed Miriam and Aaron and Moses, but she's unnamed. But how impossible it is to read these 10 verses and not see her faith. How impossible it is to look at this story and not see her dedication to not only her family, but to her God. She might be unnamed, but she's the hero of this story. 
One of the things I, I was excited to learn about Jochebed is that because we only have these two verses, I think one's in Exodus 6.20 and Numbers 26. Because we only have these two verses, you know, Jewish people have had a hard time kind of explaining who she was. They knew she was important. It's kind of like Mary. They knew that like she had to be special for God to choose her. So in my scholarly duties, you know, I was like, oh, I wonder what the Jewish rabbis have said about Jochebed, you know? They're Jewish rabbis, they're old, so it's got to be brilliant, but it's also got to be, you know, like stuff that we just don't have. So what I found out about the Jewish rabbis is that not only did they not necessarily have a, oh, this is who she was, but in our culture, we might call some of these takes that they came out with controversial, you know, but some of it was pretty interesting. So I just want to share a few. The first one is that there's a lot of people in the Jewish faith and tradition, and even some Christians who believe that Jochebed was actually Shifra, who we learned about last week. That she was actually one of the Jewish midwives who the king went to and says, you know, kill all the boys. So there's people who believe that, that Shifra and Pua are really Jochebed and, and Miriam. So then that adds a little bit of context when you're just like, oh, so that's interesting. So I thought that was going to be the most interesting thing I found. Nope. The second one that was pretty interesting, and these are from Jewish rabbis, so you know it's got to be true, right? The second one I thought was probably the most interesting was that there's Jewish um, tradition and teaching that says from the Midrash and the Talmud that says that Jochebed and Amram were married, you know, and and we can do that one because, I mean, they also had Moses, but before that they had Aaron and Miriam, Um, Aaron is three years older than Moses. We know that for sure because it's in Scripture. Miriam, kind of have fun with that. Like there's some people who believe she's seven, some people who believe if she's Pua, she's a teenager, or, or maybe even an early mother. So she could be anywhere from seven years older than Moses to 15 to 20, right? So there's a lot in there. But they said that Amram, when he heard this decree from the Pharaoh, from the king of Egypt, that they should kill all the boys, he goes to his wife and says, you know what? I'm a priest. You're a priest. We can't have any more children, so why be married, right? Now, for most of us in this room who are married or who wish to get married, hopefully we want to get married for other reasons than that. But Amram decided, you know what? We can't have any more kids. We got two. Let's just focus on the work. We're good, right? So he divorces his wife. Because he's like, if we can't have kids, let's focus on the work of God. Let's focus on our children. Let's not be together anymore. And you would think that would be the whole part of the story. But Miriam shows up again. Miriam goes to her father and says, first of all, that's stupid. Um, and this is, this is from the Talmud. You got to trust it. Um, first of all, that's not very bright, father. But second of all, you know, you and mom belong together. So Miriam is actually the reason they come together. And what's even more interesting about this is that when they divorced, Jochebed was three months pregnant. So when they got back together, she was already three months pregnant. And the reason this story kind of makes you do a double take is because Jochebed hides Moses for three months. So the Egyptians, who just assume now she's married, oh, she's pregnant after married, it's only been six months, we're not going to come around or even think about a baby for another three months. So that's where maybe that comes from. But the last one is probably my favorite one, is that Jochebed was so holy, was so dependent on God. She was such a pious woman that she didn't have Moses until she was 120 years old. However... That's not the funny part. Wait for this one. You'll love this one. 
However, because she was so holy at 120, God not only chose her to, to bring forth the deliverer, God says, because you're so holy and you're going to have a baby, I'm going to grant your youth back. Think about that. No more wrinkles, you know? You're looking at 120, now you're looking at like, what, a fresh 40 maybe? You know? Maybe 30? Jacobed not only gets her beauty and her youth back, there's no pain in childbirth. Which I've never had to do childbirth, but I'm just saying I feel that's a miracle in and of itself. But I think, though, what they were all trying to get at is that, yes, Moses is the chosen deliverer. Yes, Moses is the principal character to this Jewish faith. And yes, we as Christians can call upon the story of Moses as a reminder to us that even in the lowest of lows, our God is working, our God is moving, our God desires to deliver us. But I think what they wanted us to know above all these things, we can have theories about why God chose her, but what we know for sure is that Jochebed had faith, and her faith brings life. And that's the inspiration of her story this morning. And that's the question all of us have to answer and hopefully live is, is my faith bringing life? Is my faith bringing life to my world? Is my faith for me or for us? Is my faith bringing life? Because Jacobed's faith is one that brings life. Now remember the setting. We are still in Egypt. The Israelites have grown from a family of Joseph to a nation, to a people. The Israelites have grown to not just a people, but a people who have just taken God seriously and fruitful and multiplied. Now it's interesting because at the end of the Genesis narrative, Joseph knows that Egyptians don't like shepherds. So Joseph actually has a couple of verses at the end of the Genesis narrative where he's just like, listen, when they ask you what you do, don't tell them you're shepherds. Just tell them you take care of animals, take care of cattle. But they were such good shepherds. And one of the things I think is interesting about the, the Israelite story is they weren't just fruitful and multiplied with how many of them there were before slavery, but that Egypt gave them the best lands. Egypt gave them the best lands for their animals. Why? Because Egyptians didn't like shepherds. They didn't like anything. So like, you want grass? You can have all the grass you want. So their fruitfulness and multiplication comes not only in how many there were, but in what they had. So when the Egyptian pharaoh puts them into slavery, it's not just about getting bodies. It's about getting the stuff they had. So they're still in oppression. They're still in slavery. The fear of losing what you have leads to injustice. And we've seen this in empires from the beginning of time. So you see this in Egypt, that they feared they were losing their country. They feared that, you know, these, these Israelites, these, these, these foreigners were going to come and take what was theirs. They feared that, that these foreigners were, were going to maybe rise up one day against them. Maybe this sounds familiar, because in every single empire that's ever existed, from Egypt to Prussia, from Rome to Washington, D.C., every empire that's ever existed, when we fear so much of losing what's mine, we do some horrible things. And that's what happens to the Israelites. 
And this is one of the things I love about Scripture. One of the greatest lies that I think we as Christians keep letting the world foster on because we kind of believe it too, is that the Bible is so old and antiquated that it doesn't relate to us anymore. That is a lie, and I would even argue it's from the pits of hell. Because if God isn't real, why serve him? And if Scripture is antiquated, why follow it? Because here's the thing, Satan realizes if you don't believe in Scripture, he's got you. If what God says to you doesn't matter because you know better, he's got you. If Scripture is just inconsequential and it's old and, and no one can relate to it, you're following Satan because he letting him win. Scripture is not, this is the, the beauty of Scripture, is that it's been thousands of years and it still relates to us. How many of us have seen injustice in the name of protecting me and mine? How many of us have seen oppression and suffering and even slavery in the name of keeping what was mine? This is the same that happens to the Israelites, and sadly, it's the same that's happening in human empires today. But here's the other thing about the setting that the the Israelites are in. Remember the law of the land. The law of the land that the king said to the midwives was, kill all the boys. And when they said, you know what? Yeah, these Israelites women, they just, the babies come out quicker than we can get there, so we just don't know what to do. The king kind of pivoted. I think that's one of the things we need to understand about evil, is that evil (laughs) is dynamic, meaning that it'll change over time, meaning that the strategy that worked on one side, if that's not working anymore, it'll just change a little bit and try something new. This is why we need the Spirit within. This is why we need Jesus in front of us. This is why we need the Scripture. This is why we need one another. Because we don't often move as quick as evil does. We don't see the pivot. But hopefully with Jesus in us, Hopefully with the scripture, hopefully with the body of Christ around us, we can collectively see together when evil makes its pivot. And the pivot in the law is simply this. He says, fine, if you're not going to kill the babies when they come out, the boys, how about you just throw them into the Nile? That's the new law of the land. You see, evil has made the pivot because, oh, fine, the Egyptians, you know, the, 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 the Egyptian women are different. The Hebrew women, the babies come faster. So when they come out, just throw them into the Nile. This is the pivot that's been made. Now, you have to also understand when I say evil pivots, a lot of people, one of the things you wonder is like, why are they killing the boys and not the girls? Well, you see, this is the thing the empire does. If I want you to be assimilated into my culture... I take your daughters and I marry them to my sons in a patriarchal society where the voice of the man matters more. And I take your people and they then become my people and they lose their heritage and their culture. Again, this is something we have seen in empires from the very beginning. We can see it in Rome. We see it here in Egypt. And yes, we'll even see it if we look at the history of these United States. Evil has made a pivot. No more sons. Let's marry off the daughters. Let's take these people who are fruitful and multiply and force them into becoming Egyptians. Remember the setting that Jacobet is in, that the boys are being killed, and if they survive, they're being thrown into the Nile River. This is the setting she births a son in. But you also have to remember, 
that the, 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 the Jewish and the, the Talmud and the Midrash might not, they might have just had theories. But you know what we know for sure about Jochebed is that she was a Levite who married a Levite. Now, the story doesn't name her name. You know, it doesn't come out and say, this is Jochebed. She birthed Moses. They want you to know, the writer of Exodus wants you to know, the most important thing you can hold on to about Jochebed is that she was a Levite. And she married a Levite. See, why is that important? It's important because the Levite were chosen to be the priest of Israel. It's important because the Levites were the ones who were in charge of worship of God, worship in the temple, everything from, from, from what we would call the preaching to the music to the sacrifices. This wasn't just a random lady who was picked. This was someone who was picked because God had a dream for all of her children, that Moses might be the deliverer. But Miriam will teach us 20,000 or 2,000 years later that women can be leaders too. And Aaron will birth forth the whole priesthood. This is what she was born into. Now, who were some of the most famous Levites? Well, yes, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, but even prophets were Levites. Samuel was a Levite. Ezekiel was a Levite. Ezra was a Levite. And my Italian brother Malachi or Malachi, he also was a Levite. The call of Jochebed is intentional by God. She's not a random lady just plucked out. God looked down upon her. He knew the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and then to Jacob and then through Joseph even. And he looked at them and says, Jacob, your 12 sons, one of them will have and hold my priesthood. And out of all the tribes he could have picked his deliverer to come from, he chooses the Levite woman who marries the Levite man. Now, for those of you who are biblical scholars, you'd be like, well, that's easy. She married her nephew. We'll talk about that in our own time. But we're just going to focus on a Levite woman and a Levite man. The third thing I want us to remember, not just the setting of what's going on in Egypt, not just the law of the land, not just her call as a Levite woman, but I want you to remember the child Moses. And what I mean by that is that he wasn't the first son. Now, if you just scroll through this, you're like, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. It almost reads as if that was the first child. But we know for sure through the rest of Scripture that Moses had siblings, and his siblings were Miriam and Aaron. We know that Aaron is three years old. He's three years older than Moses. Exodus 7, 7 says that. Miriam, like we talked about before, could be anywhere from seven, depending on which Jewish tradition or rabbi you want to follow, to if she's Pua, then she's probably a teenager or early maiden, so maybe anywhere from 15 to 20. So we know that there's other kids. But why is Moses special? The Greek or the Hebrew word for how it describes Moses, I think the NIV just renders it here, he was a fine child. Now, that can mean good. It can mean beautiful. But I think the best definition I've come up with or read about is simply that she knew there was something special about Moses. And I don't know how to theologically unpack that better than saying that she had two kids already. But maybe it's because this one was the child of her old age. Or maybe God came to her and says, this is going to be the deliverer. But when Moses came out, she looked at him and knew there was something different about this son. Remember the child Moses. But also remember Hebrews when we have that great chapter, what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, right? I used to love the Hall of Fame of Faith and I was like, I can't wait to get there someday, you know? 
And then I read to the end when it says, now all these people, it's great what they did, but God desires something more. And then I puffed up my chest a little bit more and said, well, I'm already in the Hall of Fame. But in Hebrews 11:23, it's true. You could be there too. Just believe in Jesus. It's not, you, know, it's not, you don't have to take it personal. You could be there too. God wants all of you in his Hall of Fame. Welcome aboard. But in Hebrews 11:23, in that great Hall of Fame chapter, it says this, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I love that. They not only saw that he was special and God had a call on him, they were not afraid of the law of the land. They were not afraid. There's so many of us who find it easy sometimes to just say, well, that's the law of the land. What can we do? Now, there are some laws that are good laws. There are some laws that we should follow definitely. But I think the reminder of this Exodus narrative, I think the reminder of this story is that as long as you have man-made institutions, there will be laws that go against God's law. And the challenge for you as a Christian is to not hide behind the unjust laws because that's the law of the land. Because the land is only going to be for the empire. You're a child of the kingdom. The land is only going to be for its citizens. Your citizenship is in heaven. The land is only going to be how do we protect the empire and push the empire forward. Your question is always going to be how do I serve God and usher in his kingdom? There's going to be laws that are unjust. Now, I want to preface it by saying this. When we think about unjust laws, it's got to be not just your individual decision that this is unjust. Again, this is why you have Scripture to have something to tie it against. This is why you have Jesus as the example to follow. This is why you have the Spirit of God living in you, and that's why you have the body all around you. If you encounter unjust laws, you know, one of the things I love about Shipra and Pua and even Jochebed, even Rebecca, even I'm just looking through all these women of faith, right? One of the things I love is that we must not look at them and be like, well, they messed up and this, 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 and this. Because here's the thing I think I, I, think I feel confident saying by God. He loved their piety and their loyalty to him above all else. He loved that they put his law and their relationship with him and their faith in him above everything else. So remember that this child Moses was chosen to do something great, but it was something that his parents saw and it's something that enacted and empowered them to go against the most powerful force in their universe at the time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, some of you who've had kids, just think about how do you keep a baby quiet for three months? That too is a miracle to me. But they did it because God was with them. So remember the setting, remember the call, remember the child, but then remember the care that Jochebed had for her son. She had Moses for three months. Three months. You know, one of the greatest gifts I ever got in my life was when we had Harper. They told us, oh, the first night, it's going to be a lot going on. You know, you're not going to really feel it. You're just going to be, like, happy and, you know, just trying to figure it out. Then you'll think you get it. But what you need help with is that second night, you know? And I read it in the paper, and I'm just like, maybe you won't know what they're talking about. 
as if they don't birth babies by the thousands. I'm like, second night. By then, I've got a bicycle. I'm on. I'm good. Praise God for that little note about the second night. Because the second night was rough. You know, like, I don't even need that much sleep. But I'm sitting there like, baby, come on. Like, like do something with yourself, you know. Like, stop it, you know. I bring all that up simply for this. As I was in a hospital, we were in a hospital with the second night. Undoubtedly, Moses the baby cried. Undoubtedly, Moses the baby had needs. Undoubtedly, Moses as a baby, his entire existence was a threat to his existence. Think about that. Him being alive was a threat to him being alive. And yet God protected them. And God honored the love and care that Jochebed had for her son. And even when you read through this passage, think about the great care. A lot of times we think that, you know, Jochebed kind of maybe put him in a basket and threw him upriver. You know, just like, God be with you. Good luck, right? But think about the care here. The word that she used to describe um, the, the basket that she made is the same word in the Hebrew that they, made, uh, that they used about Noah's ark. So it wasn't just like, you know, uh, I'm a psychologist, you could have, uh, what is it, hand basket weaving 101. I almost took it, but then I realized I'm not crafty at all, and I can't be the first one in history to fail hand basket 101, right? But this basket that she made was something she took great pain in creating, in crafting. It wasn't just a basket laying there. It was an ark, which means that it was a seat of protection for her baby boy. It wasn't something she just like took a bunch of reeds and put it together, but she took time, maybe all of the three months, to, to, to fix this basket in a way that it protected her son. And think also about the Nile River. Think about how much the Nile meant to Egypt. The Nile was a god to the Egyptians. And think about her not just going to the Nile and saying, God, protect my son, or God, you're more powerful than this river. If you've ever been on a river that flows before, think about how much she had to think through where to place the baby boy because she didn't want him to float along. She may have had to wade into shallow water. She may have to sit around and make sure there's not heavy current. She had to find the perfect place among the reeds to not only shield him from the sun, but to keep him from flowing down the river. Think about the care she made in protecting and providing a space for her son to be when he just was three months and too, too loud, maybe. But then also remember that she left Miriam to babysit. Never forget that Miriam was there to watch over the baby. That anything he needed, she could go and try to provide. This wasn't a woman who was just like, I can't take it anymore, or, or I'm so scared, let's just put him up the river. This was a woman who took great time and care to provide all that she could in her wisdom and in all her wits to provide for her son. And she leaves her daughter there to watch over him. But here's the other thing I love about Miriam, though, and Jochebed. She also left her there to do what? To watch over the discovery. Because she knew it was going to happen. And instead of fearing it, she prepared her daughter for what to say. I think that's brilliant. She wasn't just scared of what might happen. She looked her seven-year-old in the eye and says, when this happened, this is what you do. We do so well to protect our children, but we do even better to invest in them and not get them scared for what might happen, but to know what to do if anything happens. 
And that's what she does. This is a seven-year-old girl. This is the power of Egypt coming down upon her, and she gave her directions of what to do. To me, that's inspirational. That's inspiring faith. So when the Pharaoh's daughter comes out, now one of the things that's interesting about this is that when I first read this story, I was just like, oh, she had to be important. She was the Pharaoh's daughter. You know, then I started studying it a little bit. I'm like, oh, Pharaoh had a lot of daughters. You know, like Pharaoh was like, I don't know if she was the daughter or one of the daughters, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing, when you realize that Pharaoh had all the power. So there's no guarantee that this Pharaoh's daughter had any power. Now, a lot of us grew up on Cecil B. DeMille's, the Ten Commandments. So we're just like, well, she was the princess, you know? She was one of the princesses. And I think her story is more found in the fact that God will use the weak and the people who are forgotten, the people who we don't think of to do great things. I don't know if she was the number one princess or the number 47 princess. All I know for sure is that she was a Pharaoh's daughter. She was out to bathe with her entourage. She spots the baby, but she has compassion on the baby. And this is something that's universal, I think. That no matter what the law of the land says, when she saw the baby boy, she was moved in her heart. And this gives me great hope because I think sometimes as Christians, we like to think that God is only working within our purview or God is only working in where we can see. But our God is the God of the universe. Amen. Our God is the God of the world. Amen. Our God is the God who created all of us. So if all of us are created in his image, it's quite possible that even when we don't see it, God is alive in other people. And I think God was alive in her when she's moved with such compassion. But I also think that God has a sense of humor that this Pharaoh's daughter then gets schooled by a seven-year-old. I love that Miriam goes straight to, she was trained, she was rehearsed, she was ready to go. And she said, hey, I see you playing with that baby there. Um, Do you want me to go get one of these Hebrew women to like nurse him, you know? And the Pharaoh's daughter was like, why, that's such a great idea. This is wonderful. Yes. You know? And Miriam goes back and she gets her mother. And what a blessing to Jacobed that the woman who for her whole life feared losing her son now gets to nurse him. That the woman who feared that his existence threatened his existence now gets to have her son with all the protection of Egypt. What a blessing. And some parents will feel this, that she got paid to take care of her own baby. (laughs) You know, she got paid to take care of her own baby boy. But what a blessing it is again that Jacobad got that early years, that early time to impart in Moses who he was, who his people were, and even bigger than that, who his God was. Never underestimate the time you have with not just your children, but with anyone you get the opportunity to invest in. Now, I learned this lesson the hard way. My father was killed when I was seven years old, and I'm convinced that those first seven years have made me the person I am. And the only reason I know that for sure is I didn't really know my father, but everyone I've ever met who's told me about him looked me in the eye and they said, you remind me of him. Never underestimate your days with the people you can invest in. Never do it. 
There's so many of us as Christians who are so scared of the big, bad world, so scared of what they might do to our children. Your God is bigger than your fears. Your God has bigger plans for your children than even you do. Don't underestimate that time that you have to invest in them. Because Moses might have only had three years with Jochebed, and those three years were enough for him to know his God, to know his people, and to know that even though he had all the bells and whistles in Egypt, his life was worth more. Never underestimate that. Remember Jochebed's faith. I love her because she not only chose life, but she's part of five women in this first two chapters of Genesis, uh, Exodus that God uses to change the world. We talk about the faith of the patriarchs, but the nation of Israel is not birthed without Shipra, without Pua, without Jochebed, without Miriam, and without this Pharaoh's daughter. Remember her faith. And we have this in our world as well, that a lot of times when violence happens, it's the women and children that suffer, yes. But a lot of times when violence happens, it's the women and children that step up even more. In my country of Liberia, we had almost 20 years of civil war, 20 years of fighting. And, and, and my, my quick cliff notes of the Liberian Civil War is the reason it took so much longer is if you use your U.S. geography, it's almost like we started in Florida and we're marching to Washington, D.C. And every time you took over a state, the person you were on your, 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 your team, I guess I would call that, I feel weird calling it team, but the, the people you were fighting with, one of them would break off. Then you would have to fight off that person before you could make it to South Carolina. You know, and then when you conquer South Carolina, another person would break off. You'd have to fight off that person before you get to North Carolina, and then Virginia, and then D.C. So that's why our war took so long. But ask any Liberian who was on the ground, what changed the war? It wasn't the fighters with their guns. It wasn't the men with their plans. It was women who were white, who stood in the streets, who cried and who prayed that war was from the devil, and the war that they were seeing was their children being killed, was their bodies being assaulted, was their country being plundered. And it was these great women of faith who came together and not only said, stop the violence, but they said, your war is from hell, and we will pray the devil back to hell. And it's a reminder to us, it's a reminder to us that Jochebed didn't just choose life, but her faith made her able to stand up to even the threat of Egypt. She schooled Miriam, her daughter, in what to say. She nursed Moses. She was the paid legal guardian. And the last thing about this Moses story that's kind of funny is that, you know, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. And she thought, like, she was being brilliant, right? She probably thought she was being culturally sensitive, too, because in the Hebrew, Moses means to pull out of the water, you know, in Egyptian, Moses doesn't have such a, a high standing. In Egyptian of the time, Moses or Mo or MS basically means like boy, right? So to the Egyptians, when they heard Moses, like, oh, yeah, that's just the orphan boy she took in, right? But to every Hebrew, when they heard Moses, they heard hope. They heard deliverer. They heard our God who sees. And this Moses, the child that was pulled out of the water, God's going to use to pull his people 
out of slavery. She taught Moses everything he needed to know about his faith in three years. Three years. What's our excuse to pass on our faith to the next generation? Some lessons for us today. I think the very first one, like in all these women's faith, is trust God fully and always, but trust God in every setting and trust God in every situation. Jochebed was just being faithful to what God called her to. God was behind the scenes directing and moving and making everything fit together. But her story maybe is a reminder to you. Maybe you feel hopeless this morning. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel stuck in the mire. Maybe you feel like you can never make your way out. Maybe you feel like the darkness is so thick, it's all around you, it's paralyzed you. But I want you to know, in the pit of despair, you serve a God of hope. That when you see hopelessness, he sees infinite possibilities. That when you see, I can't make it anymore, he says, I'm glad you've realized you're weak. Let me be strong. Trust in God always and in all things, in all situations. That's the work of the believer. That's the everyday growing of your faith. Am I willing to trust you? Am I willing to trust you in this? Am I still willing to trust you? That's what we must always be willing to ask and answer with an affirmative yes. The second one we've touched on a couple of times this morning Every single one of you is responsible in passing on our faith. Every single one of you is responsible for investing in other people for the kingdom's sake. We're blessed this morning to be a blessing. We've been taught this morning so that we can teach. We've been given faith or we've been growing our faith so that we can share it. You have people to reach. Only you can reach the people you can reach. Only you have the relationships with them. Only you have the connections with them. Only your word is going to matter. I can walk in and be like, Jesus loves you. They're like, I don't even know you. Why are you talking to me? You sound weird. But you can live Jesus loves you. And they will know by your testimony, by your life, by your witness, that that is true. All of us need to be investing in people around us. That's the work of our faith. It's our duty to pass it on to the people in and around us. And however you want to pass it on, just start doing it. It might come from giving them a gospel message. It might just come from giving them a meal. It might come from telling them, hey, I know that's what you think is best, but I don't think this is what is best. It might come from going down on your knees and praying for them. However you do it, you have to do it. How are you investing in the people around you and passing on your faith? And the last one is simply this. Always ask, how am I living to bring life? When Jesus says, I've come to give him life and life more abundantly, I grew up hearing that very individually. I'm like, well, that sounds good because my life ain't that good, Jesus. If you want to make it more abundant, come on down, right? I'm good with this. But what if? The abundant life that Jesus comes and asks us to bring is a life that's not just for you, it's for all of us. What if all of us are going into our everyday scenes, into every relationship, into every reaction, simply asking this, how am I going to bring life here? What if that was the framework with which you go to work on Monday morning? 
What if that's the framework and how you go in dealing with someone you just don't like or doesn't like you? How is that going to impact for eternity if you're consistently asking, how am I bringing life here? Remember that the weak were the midwives Shipra and Pua, that the weak was the Levite woman Jochebed, that the weak was the girl Miriam, that the weak was Pharaoh's daughter who doesn't even get her name in history. But yet these five women changed the world, birthed Israel, saved the Israelites, you could say. God loves to work when we realize not only we need him, but when we realize where we're weak, he's strong. When we realize it's not about what we lack. It's not even about what we doubt. It's about what we're willing to give him. And if you're willing to give him just a mustard seed of faith, he can grow it. He can grow it. And not all of us are going to be the big trees, but all of us can grow into maybe a bush. And maybe that bush might birth some seeds that grow into a big tree. But how are we going to be not just investing in people, but just asking the simple question, how am I living to bring life? Because here's the thing. You serve a faithful God. One of the best exercises you can do, and I would say do this on the regular, you know? For some of us, we might need to do it every day. For some of us, we might be able to get away with doing it once a week. Some of us might be able to do it once a month or once or twice a year. But always put this into your life. Stop and just write the ways God has been faithful to you. Because you may not need it for that day, but there's always a day coming where you can open up that old journal and just say, thank you, God, for being faithful. We serve a faithful God. But the hard part is that God desires, calls us to be faithful to. So it's not just honoring God and thanking him for his faithfulness. It's asking and trying to have your life answer, how am I being faithful to him? Trust God fully, always in every situation. Invest in others for the kingdom's sake. Ask, how am I willing to, or how am I living to bring life? Remember that God is faithful, and I must be also. We're going to end our service by singing a pretty familiar song for those of us who grew up in church. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, I read the writer of this song wrote it when he was 57 years old, and he wrote it as a poem. I don't think I, I, don't think I, I, ne- I ever knew that. I probably should have called Randy Miller. He could have told me this. But I love that he writes it at 57. And he's writing it after 57 years of knowing God is faithful, of knowing God is good, of knowing God will always be there for him. So as we sing this song this morning, I want you to maybe later this afternoon, start your first journal entry and just write the ways God's been faithful to you. I think the, is the choir coming back up? Uh, just you, all right. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors up to pray. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. We'd love to invite you up, again, as the body of Christ. This is our chance to say, hey, this is what you're going through, but how can we pray for you? Let us pray for you. So please stand, and as we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, may we be reminded 
not just that our God is faithful, but he's called us to be faithful too. Amen?